Luke 2, verse 1 to 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to, G- to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news and great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, what the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child, about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which was just as they had been told. Well, let's pray and have a look. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is always good, always true, always amazing. And as we've sung that song, Lord, we pray that your word may produce in us faith and thankfulness and hope and worship. And we pray this in your name. Amen. This is quite weird, isn't it, to read this passage? You probably only read this in Christmas time. Anybody read through Luke chapter 2 in the normal course of the year? Not something we often do, and so it's a little bit difficult sometimes to preach on it because it's so much familiarity with Christmas in the background. So I'm going to try and do it a little bit different from what normally we do at Christmas. So I'm going to see if we can make a little bit of more sense um, of it. So I've given you some huge uh, words there, the historical facts about Jesus' birth, the theological meaning of his birth, the biographical import or impact of his birth, and the doxological response to his birth. So they are big words, but they are not that unfamiliar, I hope, to you. But maybe just to start to remind you that Luke is writing so that you who already 
know may really know. He's writing to Theophilus. We don't know really who he is and who he was. Maybe he was the sponsor of this uh, uh, book. Uh, some people reckon that he may have been the lawyer that uh, was protecting Paul when he was accused in, in, uh, um, uh, in Rome and that Luke wrote this to kind of back up the story to give the lawyer some more understanding. Not really sure who Theophilus was. Maybe he was the governor of Antioch um, in, that, in those days. Uh, but he is somebody that's very important. And Luke is saying, I want you to hear again the things you've already heard. Now, that's funny because um, often people say, I don't want to come to church because they just preach the stuff that I already know. Luke reckons he's going to write a whole book to remind you of what you already know so that you may really know it. <laughs> so that you may really have personal investment in it. So that you may be convinced and convicted and changed by it, which is quite interesting. So God's word is not to inform us as such, although that's part of what it's doing. His goal is actually to change us as such, to bring about a completely different view of life. And that's what Luke is trying to do, and that is what we are going to try and accomplish this morning by looking at this incredibly familiar little section uh, that we often do read uh, during Christmas time. Very basically... Luke is concerned with the historical facts, and so he starts out by dating for us. In almost every paragraph that we've looked at, Luke dates for us what is going on. Now, if you are really interested and you really want to know, you can come and talk to me about chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, specifically verse 2, because there's a whole long and extended debate and confusion about uh, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So I don't want to confuse you with all the historical issues, but there are issues about this passage that is very important uh, for us uh, to understand that Luke is really working hard at putting this for us into historical context, and he's trying to help us to understand that. So if you want to know about that, you can come and talk to me afterwards uh, about the details. But Quirinius uh, were actually a governor on two different occasions. If he was the governor in the way that uh, it's normally referred to in most of the ancient literature outside of the Bible, then Luke has got it wrong. But if this was referring to Quirinius' first governorship, then he got it right. <laughs> um, and so it seems like Luke actually indicates here that he's talking about Quirinius' first governorship because in Acts chapter 5 he refers to Quirinius' second governorship where there was also a census. So just to calm you down, so don't worry, but there's a whole lot of historical stuff happening in the background um, and Lucas seems to be going out of his way to tell us that what I'm writing to you actually did historically happen. It's verifiable um, if you go and read the right res uh, resources. So in any case, there's just that little bit of a, uh, a thing. But really what Luke is all about is he's setting it up to story for us by telling us, introducing us to these people. Here you have Caesar Augustus. He was a, a fairly good man as it goes with Caesar's. Uh, he was quite different from the four people running before him. He was actually appointed by Julius Caesar. Um, he was not keen to take on the word Augustus. The word Augustus means excellent one, a worthy one, uh, and people worshipped the emperors because they thought the emperors were God. They actually made God after he died. They said Julius Caesar was God, and so we must worship him as God. And uh, Augustus, uh, Caesar Augustus, he said, no, no, I don't want to... I don't want to be worshipped. You can worship Julius Caesar. I'll make sure you worship him. I don't want to be worshipped. I'm a little bit more 
nervous uh, to have that title uh, to me. So he was actually a fairly good guy as governors in those days went out. But he was like all uh, men in control. He had two needs, and that is to keep the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. And they did it in two ways. They did it by having a census, and the census had two purposes. One, to know who are all the people so they could tax them. All right, sounds familiar? And the other reason is, is to know how many men you have in the world and where they are situated so that you can call them up for duty in case there is a revolt from one of these other nations. So Rome was made up of an enormous amount of nations around the world, and to keep the peace, they had the census to make sure they get enough money. So you have to pay for the peace, all right? And then you have to have men ready in case it's needed if there's a revolt to actually push them into battle. And so that seems to be the background to what is going on. So he's got his own purposes why he's doing it. But we are introduced by these almost extreme people. On the one hand, you've got the highest of the high, the elite, Caesar Augustus and Quinarius, and they are at the top end of the spectrum. Right at the bottom, you have Joseph and Mary. Completely unimportant peasants from a town, Nazareth, where we say there's nowhere, town from nowhereville. Nobody knows anything about them. They're not referred to anywhere else in the Bible except in the Gospels. Um, and yet, here we find that when God, the King, enters our world, he doesn't go to the Augustuses, the Caesars. He goes to the humble, to the unimportant, to the down at the bottom of the pile. And he actually uh, uses them to bring about his kingdom. So Caesar Augustus wants to make a name for himself, keeps the peace. God in control of all things, allows him to do that because God has got to move Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem because God has got to have his word go into fulfillment. Did you know that? Because God has promised that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Oh, Bethlehem, you are of no report, but from you will come a ruler and he will be from ancient days. So God has got to orchestrate all of history to get Caesar Augustus to be arrogant enough and proud enough and concerned enough to uphold his kingdom so that God's word can go into fulfillment. You see how weird this all is? He doesn't know that he's doing it. He doesn't know that he's actually sending out a decree that is going to bring about the fulfillment of all God's promises that goes back 700 and 1,000 years and 500 years before. So here you find the historical realities of what is going on, but there's an enormous amount of stuff going on behind it. God is overseeing all of history, and he's using Caesar Augustus in this case to bring about his purposes, but they are so humble that it's almost as if you could miss it. And so here we tell the story. So as you read the story, it's quite interesting if you read it, and I'm not sure how many times you've read it, but did you know that there's some things that are repeated a couple of times? And the significance of, I think, why he repeats it is because it's so weird. It's, it's historically true, but it's historically significant because it's not what we would have expected. So we actually were told three times that Jesus will be a little baby wrapped in cloths in a manger. Three times. Tells us when Mary does it. The angels tell them that you want to know the sign. What is the sign that the Lord, 
the Messiah, the Savior, will be born as you'll find a baby in a manger and he will be wrapped up in cloths. That's the sign that the long-awaited Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God's anointed one, comes into the world. How will you know him? How will you see him? He will be insignificant. He will be a baby in a manger. That's really weird, isn't it? Is that how you will pronounce the most important news in the world? Go and find. This is the sign that you will find him like it has been predicted it will be. But very humble, very down to earth, very out there. It's like really weird. God is going out of his way to come in humility and everybody in the world is going out of their way to build themselves up. And God says, I am doing it exactly the other way around and we'll come back to that little important thing. And then they go and they, just, and they go and find and they find the baby in the manger in class with Mary and Joseph. Three times we are told this funny little story about how this is happening, because this is how God has said it would be. The virgin will be with child, and she will bear and give birth to a son. That is exactly what is happening. The word is going into fulfillment exactly as God wants it. But what is the significance for us? I mean, those are the facts. You can go and read them, you can go and play them off, and you can see how interesting it is. But what is the importance, what is the theological meaning in in other terms of what we are talking about here? So, some of you watch TV? Larry King? You know Larry King? The guy who interviews people, find out. They apparently asked him, if you could choose any person in the history of mankind, who would you choose to interview? Guess what he said? Jesus Christ. Right, he's got it right this time around. Okay. Then they said to him, okay, if you have only one question to ask Jesus Christ, what would you ask him? What would you ask him? So Larry King says, I'll ask him if he was really born of a virgin. Because that will change history as we know it. Because that will make him the most unique individual that has ever lived. Because, it's interesting, because all other religions are telling us that if you try hard enough, if you sit long enough on a pole, if you are moral enough, if you are good enough, if you are theological enough, if you are whatever it is, you could maybe become God. But how do you explain that he is from the beginning, he was completely different, and he was born in a way that no other human being has ever been born? That would change history forever. It's interesting. Eric King seems to be a wise, wise guy. If Jesus Christ was simply a person who became God, well, then he's not really unique because that means any person in that sense maybe can try hard enough to become God. Or he is actually born in a unique way, born God. And that's what is actually going on here. God has said, I am going to intervene and I'm going to enter life, human life, and I'm going to bring about my change. So here we're talking about incarnation. I don't know if you guys have ever read on the theology of incarnation. What is it that actually is going on here? Because some pagans say we, Christians are just stealing the idea 
from the pagan religions who says any great king or any important person was born as a virgin, come from a virgin. Now, if you do a bit of history, you will realize that all of those predictions actually come long time after it has been predicted in the Old Testament that that is something that's going to happen. So if you read them, it seems like the pagans are stealing the idea that important people, unique people, people of great importance for the world, actually comes about in great, important, weird ways into this world. It seems to be coming rather quite a bit later than what we find here. So here you find the significance is that God becomes a man. Does he cease to be God? That's one of the interesting questions. So if you start to wrestle with this thing, you know it took the church 400 and something years to figure out how to verbalize what is going on here in Luke chapter 2. How to come to terms with what is going on here. Did Jesus become God? Did he stop being God when he became human? So some people talk about Jesus and his humanity. So your liberal scholars will say, Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a wise man. Jesus taught well. Jesus was a very uh, interesting man, a very important man, a very powerful man, but he was a man. And he's come to talk us and show us how to live. And if we live like that, we can become saved and we can save ourselves and we can know God. So Jesus loses his divinity when he becomes a baby in a manger and he has to eat milk and he has to have a nappy. So he actually loses his godness. Or does he become God? Or how does this work? What is really going on here? So it really took the church an enormous long time to figure out how are we going to word what is going on here and what is the significance that God himself comes to us like one of us, yet not like one of us. What are the implications if these things are not true? If he's just God, if he just seems like a man, but he's actually God, then he doesn't know what it is like to be a human being. And he can't really empathize with us. And he cannot really live our life. And he cannot really understand what we're going through. If he is a man, very good man, but he's not God, well, then he doesn't really know what God requires and who he is. So there's a lot of stuff going on here that's in the background that took the church an enormous amount of time to figure out. The theological meaning of all of this is that God, that Jesus is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. At the same time. Did he lose his Godness? No. People saying to him, you who are a mere man claim to be God and therefore we will kill you. It's quite clear that Jesus claims to be God. So people pick it up. He has to be able to identify with us. So that we can understand that he has come to save us. So God's salvation plan, as the angel says there. So there are three titles that the angel gives to the shepherds. And again, really weird. If you, if you really want to make an impact, if you really want to make a uh, headline in the news, you wouldn't go to the shepherds, all right? Because the shepherds were, they were the simple ones in the families. Right? They were the ones who you couldn't entrust any other job to. You would make them shepherds. You would, you know, they are the shepherds. They are there. They look after the sheep for us. Seriously. They were socially 
on the outside. They were the not-so-intelligent ones, the ones you couldn't give a new trade to. They were there. They were good at what they were doing, but they, you, know, you wouldn't want to make them the people who were the first witnesses that God has come into the world. God actually goes to the most humble and tells them, come, come and have a look. And as the angel tells them, look at what he says. Three important words, verse 11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. What is the significance of all of those words? Now we can take some time to look at each one of those titles. But I want you to go down to verse 13 and verse 14 to understand something of the importance. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. To understand the, how this affects us, those, those are the little words that we need to understand. He is Christ, he is the anointed, he is Lord, he is King, he rules over all, and therefore he is the Savior of everyone. What does that mean? What does it look like? And there they tell us, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. So here's the really weird thing. That the wonderful thing about God becoming man and not stop being God, is that our God can identify with you and me perfectly. He knows exactly what it is like to be human. That means not one of us can say to him, Jesus, you don't understand what it is like to be a teenager. You don't understand what it is like to be rejected. You don't understand what it means and how hard it is to obey. You don't understand what it means to have to live with people like this. You don't understand what it means not to be understood. You don't understand. Isn't that what we tend to say? God, if you only would understand what I'm going through. Well, here's the incredible thing. Jesus Christ is the Savior. He's the Christ. He's the Lord. But he's the baby in the manger. And he comes and he identifies with each one of us. So Hebrews picks it up and says, He have been tempted just like us. He knows exactly what temptation means. He knows exactly where you want to go, where your mind wants to go, where your heart wants to go, where your body wants to go in one sense. He says, the amazing thing is, I have come to be like you. I know exactly what it means to be human. And what it means to be human in a broken world. Around broken, sinful, selfish people. I know exactly what it is like. Is that good news? Do you sometimes feel you would love someone to understand you? I mean, really understand you. He says, I have come to be like you from birth right through to death. I am the Savior, but the way I save is I'm climbing into the situation. I don't shout things from above. I don't tell you what to do. 
I do it myself. I have entered it into you, into this world, into what it means to be human. Does that give you a sense of peace? That there is at least one person who understands me. One who really knows what it is like to live up to all the expectations and all the demands that is placed on life. There's the first little bit of good news. is that he comes as a baby. He has to go through all the rubbish that we go through growing up. And he actually comes and he enters that willingly. And he says, I want you to know the good news is that I am like you. I understand exactly where you are. But the good news is also is that he's very much unlike us. Sometimes when you're in ministry and talk to people, they come to you and they share with you their hardships and their pain. And it's great, isn't it? It's good to have somebody else listen to your pain and hardship. But most of what I could do is I can cry with you. Sympathize. But that's about what I could do. I cannot help you get out of that position. And I'm sure you have felt the same. Sometimes when you look at the news and you look at what's going on in the world and you think, how on earth are we actually going to change this? I can empathize. I can even cry. But unless we find someone that really understands this and is yet more than this, how are we ever going to change this? What hope is there of salvation? Are we going to shout louder at one another to pull yourself together? You can do it. Just work harder. Get up earlier. Stay up longer at night. Put more effort into it. You can change. Jesus Christ comes into this world and says, I'm like you, but I'm not like you. I have been tempted just like you, but I have never, ever given in to sin. I have the ability to set you free, to forgive you for your failure, to empower you to live. I'm not like you. I am like you and I'm not like you. Isn't that weird? Both of them are very comforting. I can change you because I know what it is to be where you are. And yet I have not given in to the very thing that you are finding impossible to overcome. I have overcome it. Come to me. That's why I've come. I'm the Savior. I am the anointed one from God. I am Lord. I can overcome this. I have overcome this. And ultimately I'm going to allow you to have my life. I've come to call you to be with me so that you can receive me so that you can behave like me in this world. Is that good news? Now, very weird, isn't it, that it says here that the glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace to men on whom his favor rests. Beauty pageant, critical question to the contestants, what do you really want in life? 
world peace. Is it true? Is it a good answer? Absolutely. Isn't it? What do you want? Peace for yourself? Or world peace? Peace. Peace to men on earth. Peace. No more striving. No more fighting. No more confusion. No more anger. No more bitterness. No more sickness. No more death. No more brokenness. Peace. Is that good news? He said, I'm bringing you good news of great joy. Peace. Peace on earth to men on whom his favor rests. Caesar Augustus sent out a census because he needed to get money and power to hold the Pax Romana. Jesus Christ says, I don't need your money, nor do I need your power to bring about my peace. I give it to you as you come to me. Mine is very different because I have the ability to give you that peace that no one actually has. I give it to you. So I take it for us, this story is a little bit different. We don't get excited about Jesus being born in the, in the shed and finding him there like the, these guys because, I mean, we know it. It's, the time has passed on. For us, the question is, do you actually know and experience and believe that Jesus Christ is the one who gives peace? Do you know his peace? I take it that's when we will sing, isn't it? There are three basic responses that you find in this text. Three doxologies, three glorifying aspects. Look at what it says in verse 17. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. This is a bit old hat for us, isn't it? Just think about it. Why would they go around telling people about this boy that was born and is lying in a manger? Because they heard the message and the things about him that was said, that he's the Savior, he's the Christ, he's the Lord, and he is the one that will bring glory to God in the highest, and he will be able to bring peace on earth. So the question for us is, is that true? Do you believe that? Do you experience that? Do you know the peace of Christ? Do you know that in Him there is forgiveness of sins? Do you know that in Him there is power to deal with the people that you live with? Do you know that peace? I mean, that's what he's saying, isn't it? Because if you do, what will you do? You will go around telling people about this Jesus who gave you? Peace. Wouldn't you? If you have the secret to life for all mankind and you've experienced it, would you share it? Or would you keep it for yourself? Interesting question, isn't it? You've got the secret to life, to real peace. 
Would you share it? Mary, it tells us in verse 19, it's not a but, it's rather on top of this. Moreover, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Maybe that's what we should be doing. (laughs) Do you treasure these things? Do you treasure the promise that comes through Christ to the point where you can ponder it, think about it? Where it actually makes sense that when you talk, you actually tell people about this Jesus who has come to bring this peace that I know has happened, and it's happening. And that is the hope for the world. Do you know how amazing this stuff is? We've got to tw- twist it a little bit when it comes to us. And then lastly, uh, verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying, praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which was just as they had been told. So this is where I want to apply to us. In John chapter 14, Jesus says to the people, his, his disciples, I give you peace. My peace I give to you. I do not give it as the world gives it. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. (laughs) There's a lot going on there, isn't it? The proclamation is that when he comes, he will bring peace. And Jesus gives peace, he says. So the question for us is, do we have peace? Do we go to him for peace? And do we have that enormous peace that he says he gives? And I don't give like the world. I don't change your circumstances so you can be at peace. That's how the world gives it. Get the money, get the manpower, we'll have the peace, we'll enforce it. Jesus says, no, 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 I don't do it like that. I give it inside of you. So that you will become an agent of peace. You will know it in your heart and you will be able to have it. And your heart won't be troubled and you won't be afraid. Now, I mean, seriously, ask yourself, are you troubled? What troubles you? What are you afraid of? Jesus says, I give you peace. I give you my peace. So that in the face of whatever may come, you know that I have already been there, done that for you. And that just blows my mind. That's the incredible encouragement of Jesus' birth. That's what he promises. When he comes, he will give peace. But you can't get it anywhere else. You can't get it from knowing Luke chapter. You can only get it from Jesus, isn't it? I give it to you. And when you have it, you won't have trouble in your heart. Philippians chapter 4. If you are anxious, don't be. Why? Because you can bring all your requests to me and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. I think we miss out on the actual reality of this actually working already. Maybe that's why we are slow to praise God, slow to talk about Jesus Christ, and slow to treasure and ponder what he's done. Don't you think? So when people bump into you, do they bump into peace or do they bump into trouble and fear? Jesus says, come to me. I give it to you. It's yours. Now that is good news. 
that nothing in this life can overcome you because I've overcome everything. Death? Poverty? Political instability? Economic upside-downness? Physical discomfort? Add, Jesus says, come to me, I will give you my peace. And I'm not expanding all the context there, but that is unbelievable. That, I take it, is what we have to ask God. God, give us to go to this one who was born, who knows exactly what it is like to be human. And let me go to him and he can give me his peace. So that I may be part of the good news, sending it into the world. Come to Christ. Make sure you're with him. Make sure that this is the good news that we are spreading. It's not that there is peace. Christ is our peace. And I can have it whenever I ask for it. Isn't that amazing? You ask, he gives it. You come to him, he gives it to you. Because that's why he's come. He will bring glory to the Father and he will bring peace to men on earth. Let's ask him to enlarge our ability to treasure that and to experience that and to share that. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the one whom you have appointed, whom you have set aside, whom you have born into this world to bring us peace from the inside out, from from within mankind. You have taken upon yourself humanity. You have conquered all the brokenness, all the sin, all the rebellion of mankind from the inside. And you are promising us that as we come to you, you will give us the peace so that we will enjoy the certainty of what you've done and you will start to do that very work of peace within ourselves so that we will overcome our brokenness, our sinfulness, our rebellion, our fear, our troubled hearts. Lord, we pray that we may know this personally, that we may hear the promise, and that we may experience the partial fulfillment already now as we wait for you to come and to change the entire context of our world. Thank you that you've come to change our hearts and to give us peace. So we want to glorify you, we want to thank you, we want to praise you. We want to ask you to help us to treasure these things so that we may ponder it, so that it may change, Lord, our inner being, so that it may change what comes out of our mouth, so that it may change how we relate to this world. Thank you that Jesus Christ is the one who is Lord and Christ and Savior. And Lord, we need salvation today. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our troubles. Save us from our fear. Save us, Lord, from our sin. Thank you that you are the answer for mankind. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.